Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 57 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with your other co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills. Hello gents, how are we? Good man, you never introduce me more formally than when it's on this show. I know, right. <laughs> my, name, my name becomes much more sort of formal sounding than it ever has before. But yeah, doing well man. Uh, I've read nothing but respect for you. Uh, thank you very much, that's really touching. Yeah. It's a nice way to start the show. Not so much for Jack, but maybe some for <laughs> Well, you know, you've got the whole show for that. <laughs> L- looking forward to this one, we've got reviews coming up of uh, both Stephen King adaptation It and Wind River from first-time director, many-time writer Taylor Sheridan. Excited for both of those. I think it could go in all kinds of directions when we get to the features. But before that, Paul, what's in store in episode 57? Well, regular listeners will know uh, that we basically take you on uh, what is essentially a a trip through the cinema. So we have uh, our In the Foyer sections. We will get to that very shortly. What Um, is that there, Paul, if I haven't listened to this before? In the Foyer would be um, where we talk about a bit of news from the week, basically. So we've picked out a bit of film news we thought we might be interested to share and have a bit of a chat about. It's normally a fairly brief section, but can, can... get away with ourselves at times yeah you know you know when you go to the cinema and just before you actually go in to see the film or buy your snacks or whatever when you're just milling about literally in the foyer the well, you kind never of, are because you're never there on time no, that's absolutely <laughs> fair uh, the kind of conversation that you might have then pre or even post cinema that's the kind of conversation yeah. that we'll have in that section after that what have we uh, got? well then we're heading straight to the popcorn counter where we dig in uh, to some of the films we've got this for, uh, watched this week whether they be new or old um, and we give brief reviews of some films we've watched this this week um returning also this week after that is the coming attraction section um which pete decided he didn't want to do anymore and has now decided he wants to do again so it's back in <laughs> yeah um. I, saw, I saw a couple of things coming up that actually got me excited about um yeah upcoming releases so that's the section of the show where you've moved from the popcorn counter again we've established long ago on this show that neither of us really buy popcorn at the cinema but just bear with us for the sake of the structure uh when you get away from the counter you go into the screening and you wait for your main feature and you maybe see some trailers we're basically doing audio trailers there where we're going to talk about films we're excited about that are soon to be released let's say the next few weeks and then after that boom into the feature review so we're going to as I think Pete's already mentioned the films we're reviewing this week so that's kind of the structure for anyone new any regular listeners apologies you've had to hear that again but we just thought we'd throw it in there for any new listeners out there yeah and uh, not to forget of course at the end of the show we will be setting uh, young upstart producer Jack Mills uh, a film to watch in the coming week this week it's going to be a tie-in to something that we're excited about which will be on next week's show so we'll explain that in due course but Jack will be watching something and we recommend that listeners try to if possible watch along with him if you haven't seen the film that we're recommending to him check it out but yeah we'll get to that at the end of the show first of all Paul uh, let's get into the foyer let's get into the foyer indeed so in the foyer this week is the news that Colin Trevorrow has been sacked from Star Wars episode 9 uh, the director of the, as far as I'm concerned, pretty lacklustre Jurassic World, and then absolutely terrible Book of Henry. Yes, I have. Um, <laughs> I have. This is not. This is not from me. I. I, I would give credit if I knew who the uh, the uh, original author was, but I have heard it said that it's okay that he's been given the boot because he has passed on detailed plans to Naomi Watts, so she's going to take on the job from here. Nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yes. So yeah, this is news that Colin Trevor has been sacked. Um, yet another director leaving uh, yet another Star Wars film. Um, obviously, we've had Phil Lord and Christopher Miller be boot, booted from the Han Solo reboot, mm. um, and Josh Trank um, 
booted off of, I believe, an as yet unannounced project. So it's kind of interesting that yet another director's gone. Um, but to be honest, with, with Colin Trevor's recent output as a massive Star Wars fan, I kind of relieved that he's gone, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, Paul, because obviously this is your, your wheelhouse when it comes to Star Wars, but uh, Colin Trevorrow, people know, um, directed Jurassic World, and it was somewhat of a surprise when he was given that level of responsibility, perhaps coming off Safety Not Guaranteed, as, as we've mentioned. But do you think, well, I suppose first question, does it matter who the director is of these Star Wars films at this level when the studio has so much sort of power and fan service is such a big deal? To does be honest, I, I, I'd actually, I'm not... I don't know. It remains to be seen. For me, I think that remains to be seen. It's a very good question. My gut answer would be no, it probably doesn't. But then we haven't seen what Ryan Johnson's done with Star Wars Episode Eight. Yeah. And if, if people thought Colin Trevorrow was an outside choice, then Christ, Ryan Johnson is an outside choice for a Star Wars film. I mean, yeah. the biggest budget film before that was Looper that he's probably done, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, Bro- Brothers Bloom had a decent budget. Yeah. I think did all right, although I'm not sure it did, did you know, gangbusters at the box office. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. And I wonder, Paul, I mean, what do you think about this? Do you think if Ryan Johnson's output is, is you know, well-received by the, the core fan base and, and does well in terms of, you know, pounds and dollars and stuff, that he'll be brought back? I think I, I think it's quite likely, because, I mean, they're not, they're not far away from shooting, as far as I'm aware. Um, I think it's likely we may see the J.J. Abrams back, um, although I think he had some issues working with, with Kathleen Kennedy as well. Um, this is just sort of rumour and speculation you read on different fan sites and that kind of thing and Ryan Johnson they they seem to be happy with Ryan Johnson's work so it, it would kind of make sense to bring him back um, but as you say does does the director of a Star Wars film ultimately matter maybe it does maybe it doesn't I think it's too soon to tell it'd be interesting what Ryan Johnson does I think also it's kind of frustrating in a way I think because although I, I enjoy Star Wars films for what they are, and I can I can kind of understand why Lucasfilm would be protective of them or Disney would be protective of them, because I think of what of what George Lucas himself did with the prequels and how badly received they were. So I don't think they want to tread that path again. But at the same time, it kind of seems a shame. There's no point picking up slightly different or out there directors, and this is probably more on the more towards the, the Lord Miller leaving the Han Solo movie. There's almost no point picking up different or creative directors if they're just going to make them work in such a way that it takes any kind of any kind of auteurism off of the film, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it must be such a difficult... Um, I don't even know if balance is the right word, but, but I suppose, for, for want of a better word, but balance to strike between wanting to put your, your imprint on something and the absolutely ironclad need to make a certain amount of money, mm. um, not only in the US market or the UK or Europe but also in the Asian market and the new demands and the shifting terrain well, in, I think in with, that sense. With Star Wars, I'm not even... I'm not so sure, I mean, obviously, obviously it comes down to money, but I'm not so sure it's just that with Star Wars. I think with Star Wars, I think that uh, Kathleen Kennedy in particular, I think, seems so protective of like the core, what she considers to be the core Star Wars and doesn't want to upset like the hardcore Star Wars fans because I think there is... I mean... You know, not not being as into it as I am, like the hate towards the Phantom Menace, for example, that's a real thing. <laughs> like, that mm. is that's genuine. Like people despise that film, and Star Wars has got such an ardent fan base that I, I think Kathleen Kennedy's just almost doesn't want to take too many risks and risk pissing them off and alienating the core audience of the movies, which I suppose is you know, her heart's in the right place. I would say, but and, and so does it make for interesting films? 
probably not. F- final point vis-a-vis Colin Trevorrow. Are you happy, disappointed about learning that he's been removed from this project as an ardent Star Wars fan yourself? I'm kind of ambivalent to it, to be honest, because I think, although I didn't go much on Jurassic World, I don't think the issues with Jurassic World have got much to do with Colin Trevorrow's direction. I thought mm. in places it was exciting. I think the issues with Jurassic World are its silly script and it's desperately holding on to sort of recreating scenes from the original Jurassic Park. Um, the Book of Henry, not a great film by any stretch. Um, just a ridiculous screenplay. Yeah, I mean, and again, again, a ridiculous screenplay. So I'm kind of ambivalent to the news that he's gone, to be honest. If, if you base it on his recent output, then no, I'm not disappointed. Um, would he have done an okay job? To be honest, he probably would have done. Yeah, I suppose I'm keen also to establish, now that we're a, a threesome rather than a duo on this podcast, Jack, are you on team indifference with me when it comes to the Star Wars franchise, generally speaking, or team, you know, keen fandom? Team um, keen. <laughs> team keen over there. <laughs> Which side do you fall on? Like, are you, are you Jones in for a new Star Wars film? Have you seen all the other Star Wars films? Or are you kind of like, you could take it or leave it with Star Wars? I think with Star Wars, definitely take it or leave it. Mm. Um, I mean, I absolutely love the the originals, um, and I think. Oh well, that puts you at least in the middle of us two. Yeah. Then, because I mean, I yeah again, it, I I don't want to speak out of turn or, or risk my safety in, in Paul's company, but I don't by any means think they're bad films. But they've just never they've never grabbed me, and I've I've made that clear in the past. I there is at least three Star Wars posters watching you at this precise yeah. time. Just to, just <laughs> so you know, there's a nice little X-wing diorama over there. So just just be careful. Just be careful. And but, also, I think the three of the more modern ones um, obviously mention The Phantom Menace being one of them um, I was generally growing up at that time so they were I suppose the problem is that Star Wars to you yeah it is, is absolutely damn shame that, that's my you know that's my time I suppose um, you're, you're mainly a Jar Jar Binks fan oh uh, yeah guess. absolutely Jar Jar Binks is probably my favourite character of all time uh, we're looking for a new producer guys yeah. <laughs> if anyone's out there <laughs> yeah, uh, I, love, open I mean I love the fan theories of Jar Jar Binks the whole thing him being a Sith and stuff. him being the Emperor yeah, yeah so, being him yeah, being an Emperor I'd, I'd quite like if they uh, doubled down on that yeah. that right far, cool. far from but, being yeah. thrown out I might walk out if we don't get away from Star Wars soon okay. so I think we'll bring this section <laughs> to an end uh, but we will be back shortly with Popcorn Movies So back we are with popcorn movies. Um, who wants to go first, Peach? And I do you want to go first this week? I feel oh, I don't. I can't remember who I'll went pop first off. last week. So. Yeah, I've got you a pop a, off. <laughs> I've got a brief one here. Got a brief one. Um, so we mentioned um, recently in reviewing American Made that Doug Liman, the director of that film, his, his last uh, output was a little film called The Wall, which I don't think either of us had seen. I still haven't seen The Wall. No, have right. you watched it? That is my first review here, Paul. So Pete is that the Wall. one with John Cena? Really? It is indeed the one with John Cena in it, yeah. Okay, so Pete Wall is reviewing The Wall. That's right, yeah, that's right. It threatens me a little bit, the titling (laughs) of this film. Uh, The strap line for this one, this isn't a war, it's a game. Um, First of all, the first thing to notice about The the Wall is that there is a cast list numbered by three people. Uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, John Cena, and then an actor called Laith Knackley, who plays the, the opposition sniper. 
we're basically dropped into a scenario whereby John Cena and Aaron Taylor Johnson's characters are American um, infantrymen on the ground in Iraq, modern day Iraq. They find themselves out on a sort of recce mission. Um, I've never been in the military and as I review this you might realise that if I use the wrong terminology and anyone wants to pick me up on that I do apologise in advance but yeah they're out on a kind of scouting mission looking for a rumoured sniper in the area Um, they think they've cleared the zone in which they're they're operating but it seems um, very quickly to be a mistake on their part in assuming that that's the case uh, John Cena's character is sent out to scout the area. They're getting a bit relaxed with the situation, maybe dropping their guard a little bit. It's a fatal error. And we're left with uh, those characters in a very tense, li- kind of limited storytelling environment in which they're facing off with an oppositional Iraqi sniper, uh, protected only by a crumbling wall uh, of the title. So it sounds a bit like they've made a film out of that whole really, really tense scene in The Hurt Locker. Yeah, not unlike that, Paul. Not unlike that at all. And it's funny to see um, this as, as as a Doug Lyman film, just because he's someone that I think, at least latterly, we connect with big action, yeah. right? Like whether it's American Made or Edge of Tomorrow or, or whatever you want to draw on from the last like, ten years, that he does big well, action time. really well, <laughs> right? And in this case, this is small. It's very character driven. It's a Netflix production. Uh, I don't believe okay. so. It I might be. A, it might, I have a feeling it might. I think be, it's an apologies, Amazon but. production, uh, okay. perhaps, because I think that's where I saw it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that could, that could not be the case. Um, either way, yeah, I think Aaron Taylor Johnson does enough. I don't think he's necessarily outstanding. It obviously has to carry a, an awful lot of weight in this film because so much time spent with him, you know, groaning and pontificating to himself and 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 trying to make the right move in this kind of cat and mouse game that he's playing I think for an exercise in maintaining suspense over sort of 85 90 minutes with such limited resources for, for want of a better word I think Doug Lyman does a pretty good job people going in to see like Jack mentioned is John Cena in this if you're going to this film or, or, or finding this film for John Cena you're going to be a little bit disappointed I think about the amount of screen time that, that character actually gets it, it's good it did though make me think of another film that I think is superior and I'm going to try and do this more with reviews I think is sort of point people in the direction of some other things if okay. they're, they're interested in that would be the um, the British military film Kajaki from a few years ago I haven't I seen that yet I've heard quite yet. good things but... if you're in the market for you know nerve shredding militaristic tension then I would direct you towards Kajaki because that's all about sort of unexploded landmines and you sort of you know you can't move an inch for risk of losing a limb and, and I think it probably does a, a more effective job than The Wall but it's an interesting little oddity The, the Wall and um, I yeah not without merit I would say okay. Paul what have you got first? Uh, I've got um, I've kind of cheated a little bit here but I've got a film that came out this week in fact uh, which is God's Own Country from I believe uh, first time certainly first time feature filmmaker uh, Francis Lee Um, this is the story of um, a farmhand kind of well kind of an an alcoholic farmhand essentially played a young farmhand played by uh, Josh O'Connor who is, is struggling to keep up with the workload on his family farm as his dad's unwell uh, and a Romanian farmhand is recruited and brought in to help them out um, and the long and the short of it is they, they fall for each other um, and embark on a homosexual relationship 
Um, Again, that's an incredibly yes. formal. Can we get that dropped? Yeah, why am I being so formal? I <laughs> homosexual <know>. relationship. <laughs> they happen. I'm cool with yes, them. Yeah, I don't know why I'm being so formal this week, but <laughs> apparently I am. Um, You're a well-spoken man, Paul. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I thought again. It's I say again. I've lost. I've lost where I am now, Pete. But I will, uh, I will refocus. I will refocus. Um, I thought it was a su- superb debut film. I think it's superbly acted by um, two. I think almost completely unknown actors um, a guy, the English guy played by Josh O'Connor and the Romanian fellow is played fellow there we go I've done it again the Romanian fellow um, is played by Alex Sekarunu apologies I've ruined his name there is, is this Josh O'Connell threatening being the top O'Connell over our boy Jack Josh O'Connor, O'Connor so. oh O'Connor yeah, okay yeah. forget that um, take that out Jack no I just I, I just think this this was it's not a particularly original film um, by any stretch you, you, you may feel like you've seen quite a lot of this before um, and certainly comparisons have been made to Brokeback Mountain because it's set on the on the Yorkshire farm so it's set in kind of the rugged countryside and certainly people have read comparisons to calling it the British Brokeback Mountain but I don't think that's an entirely fair comparison um, I think what, what I really liked about this film is the, 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 the relationship between the two characters I thought was fantastic I thought the performances were great I think the choice of going for relative, relative unknowns really 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 works well here um, and the the kind of subtleties of the film really I think I think worked for me because it would be I, and again because you go into it thinking okay well he's going his parents are you, you assume his parents are going to disapprove of him being being gay um, and it's what they do very cleverly here it's kind of insinuated that they know and aren't happy with it but they never overtly go into that there's no there's no big confrontation scene where they go mm. oh we're ashamed of you being gay or or this kind of thing that that never happens it's kind of inferred in, so there's a lot bubbling below there's the surface. a lot bubbling below the surface that never really that never comes out um which i think is which i think is great for the film and i think it's just i think it was a for me, a, a very, very well-acted um, and, and effective love story. Have you, by any chance, seen the Andrew Haig film, the guy who made 45 Years? Before 45 Years, he made a film called Weekend? No. See, I haven't either. And just what I've heard about this uh, God's Own Country that you've been talking about here, um, I heard great things as, about that film as well, okay. which deals with... Um, Alfred Molina is, is one of the leads in that film and uh, deals with a, a gay relationship in the time of the sort of um, economic downturn. Okay. And it sounds like it might be a bit of... Yeah. Not a companion... It sounds trite to say a companion piece just because they're sort of queer cinema from a similar similar era but um, both of those I, I'm keen to check out actually. yeah I think uh, there was an interesting point because I, I went to see this with uh, I went to see this with my other half and she she kind of came out not, not particularly enjoying it and she said well you know would the story have been have been as as interesting with a straight couple and she was like well well probably not I don't really under, you know and I'm like well, that's for me that's not really the point like, I think it is because it's subtly dealt with I think it's relevant the characters are gay but what I quite like from from the fact is, as I said is, is just the subtlety in which that's dealt with um, and I yeah I really really enjoyed it I think it was a very it's a very powerful film uh, and I think Francis Lee's got a, a good career ahead of him cool I think uh, him. <laughs> second for me then this week I'm going to start with a big sigh because I want to talk about my boy uh, Tarsan Singh, Paul. Um, Tarsan Singh is a director who I had incredibly high hopes for because I saw the unbelievably jaw-droppingly beautiful film The Fall, which he funded over many years of working commercials all over the world and sort of pooling those resources, considerable resources, to put that thing on screen. Have you seen The Fall? No. Uh, just, like, visually one of the most impressive films of the last 20 years. Did he direct The years. Well, Yes, he did, Paul. 
Oh, yes, okay. he did. Uh, that's what I was going to come on to. Is this, the cell with Jennifer Lopez was uh, where he made his um, directorial debut, I believe, around about the year two thousand. Um, and we've returned to Jennifer Lopez's ridiculous sci-fi, the cell territory, for the film I want to talk about today, Paul. Uh-huh. That film is called Selfless, although in fact it's stylized self slash less, a bit like face slash off. Okay, you see. Um, is it as good as Face Off? No, it is not, sir. No, it is not. And I don't really rate Face Off uh, too much. So here what we've got is uh, Ben Kingsley with his incredibly straight spine um, playing a very wealthy businessman who has the opportunity to prolong his life, but not by tradi- traditional means, uh, in inverted commas, of being sort of cryo- cryogenically frozen. You see this in, in other places. But in fact, by having his let's say soul it doesn't none of it really makes sense his soul transferred into another body uh the body in this film is the the uh the rippling physique of one ryan reynolds which will then allow him to go on with his life but obviously as a younger man physically if not sort of emotionally the trouble i have with with selfless and this film came out just two years ago in 2015 is that first of all tarsim singh is is as i've, I've mentioned from the the outset here is like this visual visionary, but you would not know it on the evidence of this film. Like it's the direction is is very flat, very standard, yeah. very sort of. In the Immortals as well, is that Tarsim Singh? Immortals and, and Mirror Mirror, Paul, yeah. See, I can, I can honestly say I've never seen a Tarsim Singh film, but it sounds like this isn't the place to start. But No, watch The Fall. I urge you to watch The Fall. But yeah, so what we get is, is something of an interesting philosophical idea trans formed into a reason for sort of shootouts and chase scenes and vaguely creepy scenes where Ryan Reynolds may or may not be attracted to the character that was indeed Ben Kingsley's daughter which would make her his daughter right um yeah I had trouble with it I mean I I having a bad run with Ryan Reynolds after I reviewed (laughs) that Atom Egoyan film recently I like him enough. He's a charismatic guy. I think he does the best that he can with this material. But again, we've talked about this a number of times recently, Paul. I just think the screenplay lets the actors down. I mean, it's not Ben Kingsley or Ryan Reynolds' fault that this is just kind mm. of like garbage is too strong a word, but but just just silly and, and without any discernible mark of a director who should be doing a lot more yeah. with his considerable talent. Um, Tarsum Singh, please, please make something more like The Fall before you run out of time uh, and have to be trans- transferred into a new wow, body okay. to carry on your work. Paul, what have you got second? Uh, Goodfellas. Oh, I've not heard of it, mate. Yeah, what? never heard of Goodfellas? Jack, have you heard of Goodfellas? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, thought, uh, I thought you might yeah, have done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, th- I haven't seen this film for years and years and years and I thought, well, basically, I, I bought it on 4K Blu-ray and thought oh, wow. I could give okay. it a rewatch. So, um Yes, uh, for anyone not aware, um, it is directed by Martin Scorsese and is from the year 1990, uh, starring Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro, um, and is kind of a classic rags-to-riches, back-to-rags tale um, of uh, Ray Liotta's... Um, Ray Liotta, what's Ray Liotta's character called in this again? It's a really oh, obvious name. Don't put me on the spot like forgotten. that. Um, Ray completely forgotten what his name is in this now uh, yeah Ray Liotta's character basically is um, an up and coming uh, sort of starts out as like a lowbrow kind of mob sort of enforcer kind of character well starts off sort of doing little errands for the mob and that kind of thing um, and rapidly rises through the ranks to become like a, a big time big time mob 
mob gangster, although not actually a made man, interestingly enough. Um, it hasn't aged at all badly, to be perfectly honest. It's still, as, as far as I'm concerned, as, as good as I remember it being. Um, it's Martin Scorsese, I think, it's certainly one of his one of his finest films. Um, there's, it's, it's interesting watching this. There's two things interesting. Well, there's a lot of things interesting about Goodfellas, but it's interesting watching this. Having recently rewatched Sopranos, uh, because so many, so many of the cast in Goodfellas then went on to turn up in Sopranos in, mm. in quite big roles in in that series, which is quite nice. Um, so it's quite nice to see. And certainly, um, what's what's great about this as well, you've got um, you've got Lorraine Bracco playing um, the, like the gangster's mole character, like Ray uh, Ray Liotta's girlfriend, and then she turns up as Tony Soprano's therapist in Sopranos. So it's like, right, a, like a, yeah, it's like yeah. a gen- genius bit of casting there. Um, and what's also really interesting about watching Goodfellas now, having uh, obviously now be, with Wolf of Wall Street now being out there, um, it's almost the same film as Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> like, yeah, there's there's so many similarities between like DiCaprio's story in, in Wolf of Wall Street and, and Ray Liotta's and Ray Liotta's character here. Um, well, I suppose that's an interesting um, point of comparison as well, because maybe the the gangsters of of yesteryear are the the business entrepreneurs of deep. of the modern the yeah. modern ish day in, in the case of Wolf of Wall Street. Although I would imagine less so, like the film Silence. Yes, it's, it's not much like the film <laughs> Silence. But no, I just yeah, it's 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 as good as it ever was. Joe Pesci's on superb form as sort of un, as, as yeah again as sort of an un, unpredictable psychopath. Robert De Niro. It's nice to rem- it's nice to see Robert De Niro in roles like this because you can be reminded that he was once very good. Um, so yeah, Goodfellas. Just, you know what's what's not been said about Goodfellas really. In fairness, um, if you haven't seen it, then have a word with yourself and go and watch it. And if you have seen it, have a word with yourself and go and watch it again. Widely available, <laughs> although streaming right now. I'm not sure. I don't know. Do we know this? Yeah, know. perhaps not. But widely available. Obviously, yeah. it's been out. See, and if years. you have, if you guys haven't watched it for a while, watch it again without a doubt. Cool. Well, we will be right back um, after a little break with Coming Attractions. So, back we are with Coming Attractions. So, as we briefly described earlier, this is where myself and Pete pick uh, a trailer uh, for a film that we're quite excited about um, that has been released recently. Um, Pete, I'm struggling to make a sentence, so you can start again, if you would, please, for me. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I I may cheat just a little bit and shoehorn in two Coming Attractions here, but I'll keep it very brief. Uh, Oh, here we go. This is (laughs) is so that suddenly he brings it back (laughs) and then just changes the game completely. I've got some making up to do, but I I will justify myself, sir. uh, I bet one of them is the one I picked as well. I can see this coming now. The first of them (laughs) is uh, a film from director Jeff Boehner. You may know as the writer of things like I Heart Huckabees and Life After Beth. Um, the film is called The Little Hours, and uh, yeah, if I said that it includes performances from Alison Brie, Dave Franco, uh, Kate McCucci, uh, Fred Armisen, and on and on and on, Molly Shannon, John C. Riley, uh, the comic caliber connected with this thing is, is incredible. Uh, it's all about sort of bawdy nuns, as far as I can tell, and um, the the sort of difficulties of living a chastened life it looks fantastic i was sold on this months ago now here's the the rub though for uk listeners at least this released cinematically in the us in june of 2016 
There is no plan for a UK cinematic release at present, and the rights have been bought by, or co-bought, I should say, by, by Sky. So this probably will show up on Sky Movies before it's available anywhere else. Hopefully we get a disc release at some Shall point I import in the future. It? Shall I import it from the US and we can all watch it together? You, you would, may, that, would, make, would that make you happy? That would make it must be out in the US. Incredibly I will repeat for you, my co-host... <laughs> Is your formal title? I will happily do that for you, Pete. If you'd like me to ship in the disc from the US, I will do so. Watch this space, watch listeners, because that is now your word is Bond, and that is happening. <laughs> the one that I'm shoehorning in is just um, because of the link to uh, Aubrey Plaza. She is also in the film uh, Ingrid. Ingrid, I should say, goes west alongside one Elizabeth Olsen, okay. who is the star of Wind River that we'll be talking about in just a few moments. Uh, the details I've got here an unhinged social media stalker moves to LA and insinuates herself into the life of an Instagram you, star yeah I think it is actually yeah I um, so. so yeah when you put, called for I'm sorry yeah. when you put Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen in the same movie um, I'm in so yeah both of those again The Little Hours and Ingrid Goes West Paul what have you got I've got one film oh well done as, as per the structure of the show um, which Jack as producer will be pleased to hear because you yeah. know someone adheres to what we're supposed to be doing on the show so um, feel free to can you adhere to, to actually saying what the film is I may well do that Pete I may well do that um, this is a trailer I only saw for the first time today actually in fairness um, and I'm very excited about this because of the cast uh, this is a film called The Current War um, directed by uh, not a director I'm familiar with Alfonso Gomez Rejon I believe is how you pronounce his name I might be getting better at these pronunciations I might not be uh, this stars Michael Shannon and Benedict Cumberbatch um, and Benedict Cumberbatch plays, I think, is it Tesla? Will you watch the trailer with me, Jack? Uh, plays Tesla. Um, Previously played by... Uh, no, he doesn't. Someone uh, else David plays Bowen. Tesla in it. Thomas Someone Edison. No. Yes, Thomas Edison. Thank yeah. you, Jack. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Thomas Edison. Uh, Nicholas Holt plays Nikolai Tesla. And Michael Shannon plays seemingly the villainous character who is the head of, I've completely forgotten the guy's name uh, in historical context, but the head of like an electricity company who seems to be going to war with them over the rights to supply electricity for the US. Um, I'm pretty excited just for Michael Shannon to be in anything, to be honest. I think regular listeners of the show will know that uh, we've got a bit of a thing for Michael Shannon on the show. Um, I've made that sound creepier than it should do. <laughs> what I should say is we're, we're big fans of Michael Shannon's work on the show and uh, I quite like Benedict Cumberbatch as an actor so it should be an interesting one to watch um, and potentially Oscar bait I would say so what's the name um, of that one again Paul? Uh, the Current War very wittily titled there nice do we have any release date? Uh, I don't know at the moment uh, 24th of November 2017 in the US so I would say that will probably hit the UK January time yeah it's probably probably sounds about right so that brings us to the end of coming attractions we'll be back shortly with our feature reviews Right, let's get into it then. So, feature reviews this week. As we mentioned earlier, we've got It uh, and Wind River. So, we're starting with It. Pete, set it up for us. I keep saying it a lot. <laughs> set it up. Well, uh, first of all, I think people are aware that this is a, an adaptation of Stephen King. Stephen King has been brought to the screen many, many times by many, many different directors. Some to a greater and some to a lesser degree of success. The director attempting to uh, do justice to the source material is 
Andy Machetti. Uh, it sounds like Machetti. Machetti. Yes. Mach- Machetti don't text. Machetti. Machetti. I think that's better. Yeah. The director of uh, Mama with Jessica Chastain from just a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Um, this story is one that was adapted already into a two-part, I think, BBC miniseries? No, I think uh, it was US, US miniseries. US okay, yeah. I apologise. Um, one that I haven't seen, but I know you have, Paul. Yep. Uh, it's all about a group of bullied kids, sort of social outcasts. The Losers Club. The Losers Club, <laughs> who are troubled, haunted, and generally uh, terrorised in, in various ways by... Uh, terrifying clown going by the name of Pennywise who seems to embody all of their deepest darkest fears here's a clip hiya Georgie what a nice boat do you want it back um yes please look like a nice boy do you want a balloon too Georgie I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? So, yeah, that gives you um, a little bit of a taste of quite how terrifying uh, Pennywise the Dancing Clown is. Yeah, it's, um, it's sort of what you've heard there is a, an early encounter in the film where. Right, that's right from the opening scene, I think. Yeah, where um, a. a, a a little paper boat, a waxed paper boat, is followed by a, a young lad down towards the uh, drains, and he meets face to face with Pennywise, the shape shifting clown. Um, Paul, let's start with expectations because you've seen this uh, two part miniseries. How high or low were your expectations going into the cinema for this one? My expectations for this were pretty high going into the cinema, going into the cinematic fair. I think the, the miniseries uh, is. Although it's it's kind of cut together in one like three hour film now, but it's it's obvious where one episode starts and the other one ends because you have um, the episode with the kids, which is what this film focuses on, and then you have an episode with the adults where they return like twenty seven years later, which is, is part, coming. Yeah, and this is trailed as sort of yeah, part, or, yeah, or so this, teased this as is part chapter one. one yeah. Yeah. So that that second part is coming, um, and in the miniseries, which is this, I will be quite brief here. In the miniseries, the bit with the kids is great, and the bit with the adults is absolute crap because they can't act for shit. Strap yourself in um, then, because that would be exciting. So, so yeah, so, so basically, there's you know there's there's room for it. There's without you know the miniseries is okay, but there's room for improvement. Um, and certainly, it's because it's it's it was a TV budget series. There was you know there's room for improvement in the budget, uh, and my expectation was quite high from the trailer. Uh, Carrie Fukunaga initially being involved and credited as one of the co-writers had me quite excited for this so my anticipation and I, I haven't read all of his books I haven't read it I will, I will attest but I am quite a big Stephen King fan as we, we talked about with the, when we reviewed The Dark Tower so you know I am, I'd say I'm, I'm a fairly big Stephen King fan um, so yeah I was pretty excited for this Pete I mean you you probably come into this fairly cold I would say in it's comparison a, it's a really funny one Paul because I have the foggiest memory that I may have actually seen the the Original that, that we're Tim talking Curry about, is the clown, yeah. but but it's so hazy that I think it must have been the case where I sort of seen you know like when you've seen part of something or yeah. didn't see it in its entirety. So I can't really base any of my opinions here in comparison to, to that um, that output. But yeah, coming into this, I, I guess I was intrigued. I mean, it struck me as something where I would be surprised if the filmmakers hadn't targeted a twelve A certificate for the release and ended up with a fifteen certificate, mm. which I think has caused maybe some some issues in terms of box office because we've cut out part of the audience already. I mean, um, 
Yeah, I, I, we'll get to that in, in due course, but I wanted to focus, first of all, on the sort of collective, you, you called them rightly the, the Losers Club, the characters yeah. brought together here. That's what they mean, that is what they're called. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for to lose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, headed up perhaps by Bill, who is the older brother of the boy who goes missing early in the film. Um, stammering, sort of um, awkward boy, as many of the group are, but uh, awkward boy played by Jaden Lieberher, who is making a bit of a name for himself after being in well the book of henry that we Ooh. mentioned earlier on as as the eponymous character <laughs> uh, but also in midnight special with aforementioned michael shannon yeah. um aloha which didn't do uh, any great shakes and st vincent so he's done a, a number of pieces of significant work and then he's got um alongside him that that one of the i want to say one of the dweeby ones that's like all of them out of stranger things yeah. um I'll, I'll find the name in a moment um also a female sort of a somewhat love interest in the group played by the actress Sophia well, lust interest would be a better description. maybe so yeah which feels awkward because I think she's about 15 um, Sophia Lillis um, who is hotly tipped to go on to, to big things so so much you said Paul that this film focuses on the kids and that's absolutely the case yeah. do you think this young cast of characters managed to, to hold the film together because we're in very like stranger things territory i think here we've got kids on bikes discovering the truth behind mysteries in but a community in, like a kind of kids uh, kids on bikes version of like blue velvet that being said like stranger things though is in it territory yeah. You, yeah, yeah yeah let's be frank on this i can one. Stranger that. things is a homage to, to those kind of things and stranger things and we're in kind of et territory or stand by me territory or that kind of thing so we're in you know stranger things as great as it is is stepping onto this this certainly the source materials territory anyway mm. um i think for me yeah i think i think they i think the kids hold it together well enough um i don't think it's as has got as much charm about it as stranger things i think for me it kind of it, it hurts the film a little bit that stranger things is out there because now as you say the immediate as soon as you see kids on bikes in like a 80s early 90s set and this is set in 1990 yeah this is set in 1990 because you've got like batman posters and freddy and the Nightmare on M Street Part Five posters and that kind of thing, so that that kind of nostalgia is there. I think the problem is now everyone is going to make that comparison to Stranger Things, and I don't necessarily think that's that helps the film um, in any great way. But that being said, I think the cast are okay. Yeah, it, so it strikes me, like I say, not having um, sort of intimate knowledge of, of the first it adaptation to the screen. That correct me if I'm wrong, but what we're supposed to latch onto here is the idea that generationally, given the 27-year gap, that will be the next generation yeah. of kids, or indeed adults, as you said, It'll in, be in the so it's lineage. The, so basically, the, it's not a spoiler to say the same, the same cast, the same characters go back right, right. 27 years later. But of course, the focus will be on the adults, but community-wise, there will be a new generation of kids in 27 years. I think yeah. that, that number comes from that place, yeah. right? So... Pennywise the, the the clown is sort of this representative figure of all of the greatest fears of all these kids so we see it um, embody or him it embody the, the fear of, uh, of parental um, sexual violence uh, and abuse at one point um, of bullies of very very violent bullies we should uh, yeah. be, be clear about that of uh, fear of, of isolation a fear of um, maybe sexual awakening and also sexual development uh, the links to things like Carrie with the female character discovering that she needs yeah. to you know deal with her having her first period and things like that so it's like rich territory however i'm not sure that 
this film does a great job of conveying those issues without at points drowning in like CGI um, overproduction maybe is that unfair? No I, I, I completely agree with you and I think that uh, the the actual the, the miniseries and this would be controversial because I'm reading a lot of love a lot of love especially across Letterboxd for this film at the moment um, I actually think the miniseries was was creep was scarier in parts and I didn't find I didn't was this scary? To no, you? I don't. The, I did not film the. I did not find the film scary in the slightest. But is is that because you're you know not you me too, but because you're sort of two times or more the age of the the kids at the centre? of No, this? I don't. I don't think it is that. I just for me and you know I, I just didn't find it an effective horror film. I, I as much as as much as I thought the vis, the, the creature design uh, and Pennywise was fantastic, and I thought Bill Skarsgård was certainly creepy. Mm. The makeup was good, and I think the actual the update of the clown I think worked very well and was certainly more overtly scary um, than than Pennywise from the from the original version. Um, but I just didn't find the film scary. For for me, I don't know why we live in this world which is obsessed with horror filmmakers just having to. They just think if you ratchet up the volume and make things go bang, that makes a film scary. And this is where I got frustrated with this. There's no, for me, there was no effort to build last to build a lasting atmosphere. Like, like to, I mean, to quote like Superhands from Peep Show, which is a random quote here. Like when he puts, you know, he put. There's no, there's no impending. There's no constant sense of dread with the film. I just think it bounced from. Ha ha ha! Look at all these teenagers. Look at the kid from Stranger Things making. I'm sorry, but, by the way, Paul, not I, very funny. I, I want to stop you. To... The kid from Stranger Things' name, yeah. in IRL, is Finn Wolfhard. Nice. So he's now my favourite actor. Name, yeah. <laughs> so you've got so Finn Wolfhard like wisecracking, which I didn't find very funny. Um, a lot of people have done. So it bounces from that to then these these quite intense scenes with Pennywise. But they're not for me. They weren't intense because there's no build up to them. They just came out of nowhere. There was no sustained atmosphere for me. Yeah, I, I would say, Paul, that I agree with you. I mean, it's very hard to have your CGI cake and eat it. It's very difficult to laden down a film with CGI shots for and jump scares that you've mentioned, but then also try and have a subtlety to um, tension building. I mean, we have a section later on in the film, and I'm not going to go into detail, but a section with the the kid, the floating kids. Yeah. which I found to be a really powerful image. Oh, it's, it's, but, there's some great visuals there, but, don't get me wrong. But, but those kinds of images are somewhat undercut, I think, by relying on this sort of funhouse jump scare overindulgence. But the problem maybe. is the funhouse jump scares. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll attest I watch a lot of horror films, and that, you know, that is, it's not an exaggeration. I watch a lot of horror films. So, you know, so, and, but the problem with that being is that it didn't, it, was, it didn't make me jump once. It didn't make me scared at all. But what I about in your screen? There. I had people like screamed in the screening that I was in. No, I didn't. I didn't see anyone scream. I deliberately chose to go when it was quiet because I didn't fancy a horror film on a Friday night. So, um, but no, I just, I just for me, it, for me, it fell flat. To be honest, it fell flat, and I and it almost suffered from the same issues that Mama suffered from, which it, it could have been quite good, and then was let down on over reliance of CGI. And yeah, what a surprise! Got the same director of Mama. And I think for. For me, I just wish it had been directed by Carrie Fukunaga because I think that would have been something quite special. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, and he walked. He obviously walked for some reason, and I'd be intrigued to know why. I think he still had some sort of. A He's hand got a in co-writing the, credit, the but he certainly. Screenplay, I think yeah. he walked. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. He walked off the project due to creative differences, and that's a cry and shame because I think this, with a stronger director, would have been something quite special. Yeah, I mean. 
I suppose I'd, I'd only sort of mitigate what you're saying with, with the sense that, yeah, we are in our 30s. We're, we're not teenage boys. And I think that some of the like teenage boy humour was actually pretty well written i thought i thought like yeah is it is it laugh out loud funny to me right now no but i thought it served its purpose i thought the 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 young cast did a good job i think the the girl whose name i've mentioned already and i forget now sophia lillis i think um i think she's gonna go on to big things i think there's promise there and i think that honestly a younger audience will have some fun with this but going back to what i said at the beginning i think that the what we're talking about Paul, with with jump scares and and and, and some of the like overt purposefully scarier or apparently scarier stuff here if we'd lost that got a 12a certificate and made something that that felt a bit more maybe like the implications of something like stranger things rather than the actualizations of something like this i just think and and the people are saying oh it's great that it's an r and you know you can throw more gore into it but for me it didn't it didn't it's not a film that necessarily needed it didn't it. feel needed no. no um and i just i just think just yeah throw away some of the that some of the more cgi heavy scenes which were well enough in were well enough in don't get me wrong but it just wasn't scary so what's your the thing that i'm mentioning to bring in what would you direct people towards rather than this super eight yeah good shout good shout yeah if you if you haven't caught up with that yet absolutely kids on bikes uh, maybe yeah. with a, a bit a bit more to hold your attention uh, I'm going to go left field and say uh, the punk band Pennywise because that's what <laughs> I kept thinking about when I was watching this right. and I know that they're obviously named after the, the clown in this so it's all come full circle but uh, yeah it might be one of their records as well uh, yeah check out Pennywise uh, if you if you have the chance and otherwise watch this space as far as uh, Sophia Lillis goes I guess but um, we'll be right back with our second review of Wind River. So yes, we are back indeed with our review of Wind River. This is um, Taylor Sheridan's... Is it directorial debut, Pete? It Taylor is Sheridan? his... Yeah, Taylor Sheridan is the, the screenwriter of, of Sicario and recently Hello High Water. Um, but I believe this is his full directorial debut um, much anticipated uh, directorial debut and anticipated as well by me because it is a film that stars uh, Elizabeth Olsen who was just so wonderful in, in Martha Marcy May Marlene and then has sort of um, what's the, the word for this been marvelled yeah, yeah she's <laughs> certainly done done something in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and has, has sort of been I think making some some un- necessarily poor choices over the last few years but um anyway she is alongside jeremy renner here brought it is cool i like jeremy renner right she she's brought in to a community on an uh indian reservation in wyoming um to investigate an unsolved crime let's say um we're introduced to the, the sort of um external details of this crime in one of the opening sequences in which we see a girl running through the snow and, and collapsing um, and we are then very quickly introduced to the Jeremy Renner character who works as a tracker tracking threats to local livestock um, in an early scene he doesn't take up the opportunity to shoot dead a lion in a scene that shows all the trademarks of the sort of uh, metaphorical language that Taylor Sheridan has kind of made his stock in trade in his, his screenplays over the last few years. Um, of course, coming from the other side of the camera as an actor to um, to writing and, and directing. 
Yeah, uh, we're then drawn into the mystery and um, Elizabeth Olsen's character is an FBI agent who's well out of her depth. Not unlike how she was uh, in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, and I'll talk more <laughs> about that later. Um, and the two, uh, Renner's character, Olsen's character, team up to try to find out anything they can in the most barren, unforgiving landscape possibly imaginable. Here's a clip. Over here, see this one? See how the toes turned out? The front is much deeper than the back. That's says she's running. Come here, let me show you. She ran until she dropped here. See the pool of blood where her face hit the snow. Now it gets 20 below here at night. So if you fill your lungs up with that cold air and you're running, you can freeze them up. Your lungs fill up with blood. You start coughing it up. So wherever she came from, she ran all the way here. So yeah, that gives you a little bit of a, of a taster of the tone of the film, which, fair to say, is um, almost as, I would say, almost as bleak as the area which it's set in. Um, so yeah, if you're expecting to kind of like a happy-go-lucky um, happy yeah, film. If you've seen Sicario and Hello High Water. Yeah, well, you, should, you should know what to expect, <laughs> to be fair. So yeah, you're in, you're in. I would say, is it too early to say classic Taylor Sheridan territory? He Probably really, not, to be he fair. He really but... likes to drop you into the fucking shit, doesn't he? Yeah. From, from the outset. I mean, think about that that house um, that Emily Blunt investigates, oh, Jesus, the beginning Sicario, of Sicario. Yeah. Like, and and then in this thing too, I mean, the kind of grisly nature of the, the situation that you're, you're dropped into. Now... Um, Paul, I want to ask you first of all about one of the very, maybe the first thing you see in this film, which is that very, very familiar title card that tells you based on actual events. Yes. Why is that here? I mean, I understand the obvious reason that that's here is because there were some events that were similar to the events depicted in the film. But I felt from the outset that that didn't necessarily need to be there. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I kind of agree. I think there's the the, um, the titles that come up at the end that kind of talk about that. I think are relevant, but at the beginning, no, I don't think based on based on actual events and, needed to and be. And funny enough, I kind of think the titles at the end, and we'll get to them um, a little bit, maybe uh, are even more egregiously unnecessary. But okay. um, but we'll come to that. Yeah, you were saying um, bleak landscape, te- Taylor yeah. Sheridan uh, territory for, for absolute certain. Now. Elizabeth Olsen, um, some have criticised, uh, I'll start from this point, we'll go from here, some have criticised the depiction of this character as a female FBI agent working on her own in a territory that she's not familiar with. We're told in the film that she's flown out from Vegas, but yeah. she's not from Vegas, she's from, I forget, the LA, somewhere else. Um, we're in Wyoming, aren't we, in the film? Uh, and we're in, yeah, 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 in the film we're in Wyoming, but yeah. that's what I'm saying, is yeah, yeah. she's well and truly dropped in to a place outside of her comfort zone. She enters this fray in heels, uh, inadequately dressed and needing to borrow a sort of survival wear and thick clothing from the, the native people who are uh, working alongside Jeremy Renner in the investigation. Um, at the outset, Paul, do you think there's a problem with this film based around the depiction of the, the female character as, as fundamentally a little bit ridiculous and helpless? No. Okay, expand. <laughs> expand if you I, would. I, I don't think there is. I can I can see why people may have that problem with it. For me, I think if a male character had arrived, I think the male character would have arrived just as unprepared. And I think for me, 
at least this was a, a quite a, a sensible kind of story dynamic just to enhance the feeling and I think this is what Taylor Sheridan did very well that you really are in the arse end of nowhere mm. and that this really really is a barren reservation maybe there's and I think no that, preparation and I think right? for me it even shows that if the even the FBI have arrived and the FBI are out of their depth I think if you're looking at it that it's a woman character I think you're probably overanalyzing the point of that to be fair I don't think it's the fact she's a woman is, is relevant in that scene. It's just the fact that even the FBI aren't prepared for how barren and forbid, foreboding this place actually is. So, no, Pete, for me, that isn't an issue. I, I was slightly playing devil's advocate because I, I basically agree with you, Paul. I think that um, one thing that really um, grabbed me about the film um, is that, as I talked about in the show before, I'm a massive advocate of the film Martha, Marcy May Marlene. And in that film where um, Elizabeth Olsen introduced herself uh, as a, an actress of, of some standard and, and standing, she was uh, isolated, she was confused, she was vulnerable. In this film, a lot of those traits carry over, yeah. and I think that that's where she does some of her best work. So I actually think whether or not you have reservations about the characterization. This or Indian is... reservations. In <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I didn't go there, but Link. you did. Um, <laughs> yes, that uh, that it allows for that actress to show just how good she can be when she's not working on an old boy remake or Red Lights or yep. Liberal Arts or whatever dross has come in between. <laughs> um, yeah, and then alongside her, Jeremy Renner, we mentioned uh, Michael Shannon before, and it felt like the kind of role where where a sort of Michael Shannon ish actor might have also uh, flourished. Renner good enough for you here were you impressed by him I, I love Jeremy Renner I, I think he's got he's got a presence about him I think this is this is the kind of role that, that suits him very very well um, like a man a few words like he's kind of, kind of the unassuming badass for want of a for want of a better description and I, I, I liked Renner I, I liked pretty much most things about this film to be honest mm. um, I thought Renner was great um, and I thought the role suited him well yeah because there have been again maybe it's a bit of a, a straw man argument or a bit of um, I'm playing devil's advocate to even bring it to this discussion but there have been discussions that Jeremy Renner is this sort of white knight white man on an Indian reservation oh, come on, there to fix right. everything but this is the conversation surrounding no, I mean, this film so it, we should address no, that it's, it's, I, I fair, it's fair that we, we should address that but I think this I'm not saying that there are there are issues with race representation race representation in Hollywood. There are without a shadow of a doubt. No one can argue that. But I think sometimes people look for them when they're not really there. And I, right. I think it's it's always, it's relevant to the story that Jeremy Renner is a white man because he does initially he has to he has to earn the respect of the native Indian population and, and that's maybe, kind of insinuated. Maybe, so, maybe not quite so so tacked on and sort of egregious as uh, as the Leonardo DiCaprio character in. Um, uh, no, no, where he has a, a native wife. Um, oh, God. The Reverend. The Reverend. Thank you very much, <laughs> producer Jack. You've dug me out of a hole there. Uh, yeah, a hole filled with uh, the innards of a wild deer or whatever happened yeah. in that thing. Um, yeah, not not quite as tacked on as in that film where it felt like almost like a, a no, side No, I suppose note. I can understand, you know, I suppose I can understand why people, I, I can understand why people are looking for the issues within Hollywood films. I don't think the issues are there in Wind River though, to be fair. I, I, I don't think they are. So let's talk a little bit about, a little bit more, I should say, about this environment because you touched on it and it's one thing that I think really um, impresses me about Taylor Sheridan, particularly that this is his feature debut as a director the way in which the landscape was captured the way in which the the sense of isolation which 
you know we've seen depicted elsewhere we've seen from everything from um you know john carpenter through um much more modern day sort of isolationist indie stuff these kind of environments depicted but i thought that um as a visual stylist Taylor Sheridan has a lot going for him even in even in choices within this film that seemed a bit obtuse using sort of slightly shaky handheld cameras at points where you'd look for other maybe more stately directors to have sort of big sweeping yeah. self-aggrandizing shots that visual style worked for me really well here uh, are you with me on that completely i just i think the, the sense of isolation i think is almost second to none that this film that this film kind of breathes within you and there's even little lines of dialogue where it's like yeah you've got to drive 50 miles to travel five mm. and you're like can we not do 70 miles it's little things where like she asks can we not do 70 miles an hour on like the um on the snowmobiles and you're like well how far are they going on the snowmobiles are they going 70 miles an hour on these things um, yeah, I just think for me, you know, to, as, as a whole, I think for me, everything really, really worked on this film. I've got, I've got a lot of time for Wind River. Yeah. Um, I came in expecting to, expecting to enjoy it, and I did really enjoy it. And I think what's, what's nice to see is that there seems to be. I was thinking, oh, I haven't seen a film like it for a while. There seems to be, and I can't remember. There was a, a, a fa- quite a famous director, and apologies, I can't remember his name, uh, who brought up a, a while ago that there's not really any room for kind of mid-budget Hollywood films anymore. And I thought, and when I was watching Wind, Wind River, I was like, actually, he's got a point because it's been a while since I've seen a thriller of the budget that Wind River has, if that if that makes sense. So it was quite nice to see what I would describe as a mid-budget Hollywood film again. Mm. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very effective thriller. Um, and, and punctuated by these kind of shocking... I mean, nothing surprising, I suppose, if you've seen the, the director's previous uh, screenwriting work, but, like, moments of, of really quite, like, shocking, jarring violence mm. all of a sudden. And, and this, you know, the... Obvious. Don't fuck with Jeremy Renner is the uh... <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I came up with an alternative title for this one. See what you think. Uh, no country for non-men. Nice. <laughs> but make of that what you will. Yeah, I do though. Paul want to like dampen my enthusiasm slightly by just pointing out the fact that okay, we mentioned at the beginning of the film it says based on actual events, and at the end of the film we're treated to um, not a, a title card but sort of a. a uh, what do you call it? An epilogue. Well, intertitled, isn't it? Really? I yeah, that tells us about um, Native American um, missing people, and that most of those situations go unsolved. Something like eighty percent of them, I think, because of course the the victim at the centre of the the mystery and murder mystery, as it becomes apparent, is a Native girl, young Native girl, who's been in a relationship with uh, with uh, a, an older man. Now. To me, those two things at the beginning and at the end of the film just made this seem a bit too didactic and preachy where the story could have just stood for itself. Okay. I I, I often, like, whenever that happens, I, I find that, like... Almost always, I find that when we tack on this extra information at the end, it's like, oh no, the story has told me what the story had to tell mm. me. We don't need to then be told, oh, by the way, people going missing in, in barren environments is really bad, and people on Indian reservations, you know, are treated worse than people who aren't in those situations because that's what I should have learnt from the film. So I just found that like a slightly awkward sign okay. off from, from. No, the, I see. I didn't. I didn't struggle with that. I think from. from 
from Camp Paul, as it were. I think the Wind River. There's there's a lot to like, and it's a strong. It's a, certainly a strong recommendation for me. I think can really, can really I bounce good. out with a with a further recommendation? That would be for uh, Encounters at the End of the World. Uh, it made me think of the Werner Herzog do- documentary Encounters okay. at the End of the World. Which I've got on that shelf over there, uh, but yet uh, from yet a few years ago. Werner Herzog's in Antarctica. It's wonderful. If you like this, you'll like that. Um, yeah enjoyed this though I don't want to sound negative I no, enjoyed I it think you have very much negative, and I'm yeah. looking forward to what, whatever Taylor Sheridan does next yes um, well that pretty much nearly brings us to the end of the show um, we didn't set Jack any homework last week because we forgot so that was pretty poor of us so sorry Jack <laughs> um, but this week unless anyone has any better suggestions because Mother is out on Friday uh, at the cinema with directed by Darren Aronofsky uh, we're going to set Pete uh, not Pete the homework because Pete's seen it we're going to set Jack the homework of Bong Joon-ho's Mother Brilliant. Um, Not his Korean actual film. real life no. mother, but just which the film. Which is a Korean yeah. film that I think we've talked about in the podcast. In fact, yeah, we so have. Yeah. For me in the past, so that's going to be Jack's homework for next week. Unless anyone wants to suggest anything else, in which case, listeners override hosts. Um, so do get in touch. But for now, um, catch us on Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram and Facebook, and I will catch up with you guys next week. Peace. Bye bye. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down. 